Hey there, welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Amanda Connolly. This week, I'm speaking with Kieran Flanagan, the host of a great podcast called Growth TL Dior. But that's just his side gig. When he's not behind the mic, he's the VP of Marketing and Growth at HubSpot, where he's responsible for driving acquisition of their sales products, monetizing their freemium funnel, and optimizing traffic and conversion for their website. I invited Kieran to sit down on the other side of the podcast mic as our guest, and we spoke about his product-led approach to growth. It's interesting to think, how does the product itself sustain its own growth? And so how does it attract people towards it? Like, how does the product actually acquire net new users for itself? How does that product onboard people onto the value of that product in a really short amount of time? And how does that product provide monetization paths to upgrade people into paying customers? The idea of product channel fit. If you kind of distill marketing down and you can make it like very, very simple, there's only a few platforms you can actually grow from that will give you sustainable growth. And the way he works with product teams to blur the lines between growth, marketing and product development. I learned that a lot from working with PMs and engineers to be more thoughtful about the problem before I actually suggest a solution. So I think that's definitely one thing you can do is like spend time with products, spend time with engineering and how do you build empathy between those teams. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes and other places where you get your podcasts to check out the other interviews that we've done. So now let's jump right in. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Kieran, you're very welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to HubSpot? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I'm uh, really excited to be on your podcast. It's definitely one of the ones I listen to all the time. So my journey is basically I work for HubSpot. HubSpot are a platform company. We have a suite of tools that help marketer, sales, customer service people grow companies. And so I joined HubSpot uh, at a very interesting time when we were about 300 people globally way back in 2013. And I joined a group of 12 people who had the mission of growing HubSpot internationally. So we were the first group of people who joined outside of Cambridge. And I did that for two and a half years. That went really well, thankfully. And then I started another journey within HubSpot. After that, I joined a small group of people who had this mission to uh, create a kind of freemium go-to-market for HubSpot. Uh, And I did that for another two and a half years, and that was also a lot of fun. And then a year ago, I changed roles again. Uh, (laughs) And and what I do today is I manage all of our different teams who generate global demand for HubSpot. That's uh, in users and leads. And the interesting thing about HubSpot, I think, is 100% of our revenue comes from demand marketing create. So we don't do any cold calling or anything like that. And so that has been my like a journey, my experience in HubSpot to date. And HubSpot's growth has been undeniably phenomenal. So from your years of experience there, what do you think the key drivers behind that growth have been? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. I think one of the important decisions HubSpot made early on was to really focus on SMBs and mid-market. So Mm -hmm. what typically happens to tech companies is they start off maybe in mid-market and they really decide very quickly to go into enterprise. And we didn't want to do that because we felt the mid-market SMBs were really underserved. They didn't have really great tools that helped them to grow their business. And I think that was a good decision. Over the years, we've kind of got stretched our market as our customers have grown. We have tried to grow with them and our tech has got a lot better for bigger companies. A couple of other decisions, like we are good at inbound marketing, it turns out. So that has been pivotal to our success. That's really helped us to grow. 
the kind of international was really successful for us and really helped us to grow a lot faster. And then freemium, like we risked a lot to disrupt our own go to market. And so we created this freemium model that allowed people to try our software uh, to, and extract value from our software before they ever had to pay us a dollar. And I think that's where really software is going within the B2B space. And it turns out that was a pretty good decision. And then like any companies, I'm sure Intercom are, are similar to this, launching new products is a big part of how you grow because you create new S curves, new growth curves that are you know, great for new audiences, great for increase in revenue, things like that. And it strikes me that your approach to marketing and growth is very much driven by the product compared to a lot of other marketers. Most marketers think about external acquisition channels and you seem to think about the ways that you can build viral loops into the product or improve other aspects of it to drive faster adoption. Where do you think this product-led approach to growth came from? Yeah, so I generally do all types of marketing and are, I'm interested in all types of marketing. The reasons that I've wrote a lot about product-led growth and loops and viral loops and virality is just because that's something I try to figure out I'm trying uh, over the last couple of years. And generally, my write-in reflects the thing that I am you know, trying to understand at that point in time. And product-led growth is interesting to me because I think what we are seeing in the B2B space is a want for consumers to experience B2B in the same way they experience B2C. And that means that they are able to interact with your product before they ever have to pay you a dollar, that they have some type of frictionless experience to how they want to pay you money and use that product on an ongoing basis. And when you think through that, then the product itself, it's interesting to think, how does the product itself sustain its own growth? And so how does it attract people towards it? So the product, like how does the product actually acquire net new users for itself? How does that product onboard people onto the value of that product in a really short amount of time? And how does that product provide monetization paths to upgrade people into paying customers? And so there, so I think that that is an important trend that we see in tech and something that is going to continue. And when do you think it makes sense for other teams to take a product-led approach to growth? What conditions do you think that they need? Uh, so I think the first thing you need is like your customers have to generally be interested in experiencing your product in that way. So product-led growth generally is a good fit for companies who have a freemium option or a free trial because the you know in a sales-led model, you have a product that needs to be explained through a sales person or a sales interaction. And in a product-led growth go-to-market, you're really allowing the product to do a lot of that job for you. So you first of all have to think through is this how my customers want to experience my product? And there's a lot of companies that may have a very complex product that needs a salesperson to bring them through it, to demo it, and is a better fit for like a sales go-to-market. The other thing I think you need in a product-led strategy, and there's probably lots of definitions of what product-led growth is, so I'm just giving you mine, is you need to have some sort of product where it's easy to understand the value because you want to get that person to experience that value and then like spread that value within their networks. And so you need to be able to onboard that person to like, what is the core value proposition of this product? And it doesn't take a lot of explanation. I think that's really important. And then you need to be able to have some ways or mechanisms within your product that allow people to actually upgrade to a paid model. So you need to be able to figure out like what are triggers that, you know, what should be in my free plan versus what should be in my whatever plan, the pay plans you have generally in, in our industry at Startup Pro Enterprise. So I think there's a lot of variables that go into like 
dictate in whether a product-led model is the right model for you, or you'd be better served to, you know, have a sales model. But the, the reality is there's no right or wrong answer to this. Most companies have hybrids. We have a hybrid. We have a very, we have a freemium uh, go-to-market, but we also have a lot of our revenue come through leads that sales interact with and talk to. They're created by uh, inbound demand. But there's many, many companies that just have very hybrid models. And you've written a lot before about product channel fit. Can you explain what product channel fit means and why is it so important? Yeah, so I should, um, again, this is a really part of trying to figure out that product-led growth strategy. So product channel fit is something that Brian Balfour, who's the CEO of Reforge, uh, wrote about. And I think it's a really good way to think about acquisition of uh, users and how you're going to grow your company and your product in the very early stages of when you are creating that product. So when most people, startups, think about, you know, the kind of early journey, they're thinking about product market fit. What are the right groups of people to actually use this product? Can I get them to use it? And can I get a certain percentage of those to actually retain over time? So product channel fit is similar to that in that you were at a very early stage thinking about how does my product fit with these different platforms and channels and how is it going to acquire growth from those channels. And so to give you an example, if you kind of distill marketing down and you can make it like very, very simple, there's only a few platforms you can actually grow from that will give you sustainable growth. So there's Google, right? Has a lot of huge audience. You can extract a lot of users from uh, Google. You can uh, do that through platforms like Facebook that have a big audience if your product is a good fit for them. And then you have some means of virality and virality kind of is broken into engineered virality where your product exposes itself to other people and those people are going to you know see that product and maybe sign up for it a percentage of them will and then there's this word of mouth right your product serves a really great use case it's very easy for that person to understand and they can spread that within their network and so very early on you can kind of think about like how do i build my product in a way that that fits those channels and so a really good example of that is there's a company called rap genius uh, mm-hmm. being from ireland donegal obviously into a lot of hip-hop music uh, it's a natural fit. And they're they're called Genius.com now. But when they were growing, and it was a very competitive space for rap lyrics, and what they do is they have this huge database of lyrics so you can go and search for any song. They created a feature that allowed their audience and people who signed up to add commentary to all of these different lyrics and tell you what they are about. And by doing that, they created like this loop where you would have users sign up, create user-generated content. It would enrich their pages. Their pages would be more valuable, rank better in Google. And then because they rank better in Google, more users would sign up and it's like a virtuous loop. And so that's one good example of how a company could see value in building their product into Google and extracting more users from it. And so I think you need to think as a company, it should acquisition shouldn't be an afterthought. It should be actually built into your product. And how have you done that at HubSpot? So in HubSpot, we have kind of a couple of different product channel fits. So one of our channel fits is just Google. So when we launch the marketing products and when you approach Google, there's kind of two avenues you can take. There's appearing for the things that you do and there's appearing for the things you solve. And so appearing for the things you do is really a transactional kind of search. It's someone searching for, in, in your, maybe in Intercom's case, it's searching for live chat or customer service. Like It's the thing you do, and you want to make sure that you're visible for the thing you do. The things you solve are all of the problems your product can solve, 
that you can educate people on before they're even aware of you as a company or aware of you as a product, right? So for HubSpot, we were able to educate marketers just how to be better marketers. And they didn't know what our product was. And it turns out that was a good challenge for us because we could create a lot of demand from creating content, education of content around that. And actually those people would then go on to sign up for our product. And to give you a counter uh, example, when we launched our freemium CRM, that was not a good fit for that for that good product because people were either going to change their CRM, adopt a CRM or not. You couldn't like educate them on the things that a CRM would solve and then uh, convince them to change their CRM or try another CRM. And so a lot of our time was just spent appearing for transactional keywords, like when people were in the buying process, making sure that we were visible everywhere you could be visible. And I think, so that's, we've kind of taken it, taken it product by product and try to figure out when we are creating that product, like what is the right channel to fit and build our marketing playbook around that. And have you ever made a mistake in in just in life, <laughs> <I've made lots. laughs> in life in general, or uh, when it comes to product channel fit? Um, yeah, I think when we when we first kind of created freemium, we spent a lot of time trying to replicate that inbound playbook for freemium and working with influencers. And I think that's all good stuff because it actually did get us a lot of brand recognition. But we did figure out that the in the freemium space, the kind of content to sign up to a portal to upgrade didn't work as well as it did in the marketing space where we had people create leads and sign up to our, our marketing product. So we definitely learned a lot about freemium in those early days where we try to just like replicate one playbook that was working for a kind of different go-to-market and then or a different product and then just kind of think that it was going to work with no with no real changes. So and we've kind of iterated on that over time. And how do you work with product teams to bake growth levers into the product? Who is it that identifies these opportunities and drives that roadmap at HubSpot? Yeah, so we've gone through, I think, the typical evolution that every company goes through when they are building at growth within that company. And so if you talk to like most companies, the kind of three stages of growth are you create a, a, a growth team. It's in its infancy and it's made up of a you know, cross-functional team of people and they have some metrics they want to move and you kind of know that there's this thing you want to do and there's like this experimental approach to doing this type of work. And that team kind of frustrates a lot of other teams because they're stepping on toes. Everything kind of is in chaos. And through that chaos, there's some sort of wins that you get, right? So there's something happens and you're like, oh, this thing actually did, through the chaos, this thing worked and we can see some sort of uh, reason to keep investing in this kind of growth thing. And then what ha- I think what happens is you you kind of centralize that growth into a best-in-class team. And for many companies, not all companies, for many companies, that means establishing a growth team within product. Mm-hmm. And then the third phase is that that centralized team start to democratize growth across the product team. So what they do is they build the processes, the tools. They build all the things that allow PMs then to just bake growth into how they build products. Because for me, at some point, growth is just like how you build products. It's not a separate thing. And so in HubSpot, when I joined HubSpot on on the freemium side, we were really just at that one, at phase one. And I was kind of running the marketing growth and working with product and engineering really until we got to that phase two. And then we, today we have a, a centralized product team who sit within product and they're really establishing the best practices. And they're the team who do all those things that you, that, that you asked today. But they are actually democratize a lot of that and the PMs are actually responsible for it. So when they build new features, they're really thinking about, should this be free? What should be in free? What should be in the paid tier? What are my PQL triggers? Like, how do I upgrade people to the paid version of this feature? And it's really just kind of baked into how they're building product. 
And you touched on it there. A lot of the time, growth is a very cross-functional and often frustrating process within companies. So what's your advice for marketers who might find it challenging to affect that product roadmap? Yeah, so I think to stop speaking to just marketers, right? So go hang out with the product and engineering team. That was one of the, I, I'm an ex-developer. And even when I started to work a lot more with product and engineering, when I start, started the freemium role in HubSpot, I made so many mistakes that are just, you know, basic mistakes, which is like one of the good examples of this is marketers tend to, and for a good reason, because they are always under pressure, tend to jump to solutions. So you're like, go to your engineer and go build this thing for me because it's going to, I want this thing. And that's not what the engineer actually doesn't want you to just prescribe a solution uh, or the product. Neither product or engineer want you to prescribe a solution. I think where product and engineering are really good is they are really good at um, trying to articulate the problem in a very clear way and understand that problem and get their hands around their problem before they ever start to get to a, a solution. And I learned that a lot from working with PMs and engineers to be more thoughtful about the problem before I actually suggest a solution. So I think that's definitely one thing you can do is like uh, spend time with products, spend time with engineering. And how do you build empathy between those teams? And there's a, uh, a really smart guy, Matt Greenberg, uh, VP of Engineering for Credit Karma. If Intercom haven't had them on the podcast, you definitely should. He's he's a <laughs> he's an amazing person, and he had a really. I talked to him a lot about this, and he had uh, really great thoughts on how you build empathy between marketing and engineering. Because I think that's definitely one of the relationships that are key in marketing going forward, especially for product-led companies. And he had this like really funny uh, story where he's like, you know, marketers will come to engineers and say, just turn this button red, right? That's just an example. It wasn't a true example, but it was kind of funny because that actually does happen. <laughs> and so you go to an engineer and say, just, didn't, just turn this button red and go away for a day and then you come back. And the engineer in the meantime has found out that there's many hidden complexities and actually doing that in the, in the systems that there's the brand team who do not want that color, doesn't fit the style guide that if he turns that thing red, these other things turn off. And those other things, turns out, run the whole company. <laughs> and the marketer comes back the next day and goes, hey, have you turned that button red? And the engineer goes, well, not yet, because there's all these things. Oh, it should only take five minutes, right? And I think that's that's where a marketer doesn't understand the kind of like intricacies of all the different things that are going on in the back end. And I think the way you can build empathy towards that is just spending more times with, with those different teams. And oftentimes when it comes to developing a growth strategy within a company, metrics are something that people find very interesting to dig into. And as someone who is obsessed with numbers and analytics myself, you often see where people have questions that are quite general and you can almost always make the numbers tell them whatever it is they want to hear. But that's not necessarily always the best thing to do. So in your opinion, what are the best ways to measure growth? And what are the metrics that you always look out for? Oh, okay. So, yeah, you can definitely make numbers tell. One of the arts of being a marketer is to make, uh, when you're under pressure, is to make numbers tell the story that you wanted to tell, uh, no matter what. <laughs> it's probably not the best thing to do for your career long term. So I think it's really it's really hard to know, right? It's very dependent upon, I can give some examples, but I think it's very dependent upon the company because every company is different. Um, I think a lot of companies, when they are in their growth journey, the inflection point they go through is when they've discovered their like North Star metric. And I'm sure you guys have a similar metric to that. And that North Star metric is like, what is the thing that just tells us that people are getting more value from the product? Because mm -hmm. that's the thing you really want to obsess over. Like, regardless of all the metrics, the thing you're going to care about is, are more users experiencing the true value of the product? 
And the North Star metric for us, for an example, when we discovered that two or more company or two more people from the same company were using our platform in a meaningful way, and we had some different actions that would be uh, would show us that they are getting true value from it, we were able then to collaborate across teams on a single kind of metric. So when we acquired users, we looked to see how many of those users would go on to do that action. When we created our onboarding, we would onboard people to do that action. When we and we knew that if that the more people who took that action, the better upgrade rate, the better retention. And so if you can try to figure out like what are the things that are happening in your product that correlate to that person getting more value, and t- typically what you look for is you know is that are those people upgrading and retaining because that's mm-hmm. what shows you they're getting true value from the product. I think they're the metrics that that t- tend to matter. But the the cool thing about growth teams is like you can change the metric they should focus on throughout the year. So you can create these small groups of people around the metric that you want to move at any given point in time. And they can create some things to make movement on that metric. And then you can kind of repurpose them into into other metrics that matter for you. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Been a little over 10 years now since Facebook was probably one of the first companies to introduce a role dedicated to growth. Um, I'd love to learn more about how you run marketing and growth at HubSpot. Organizationally, how are you guys set up? Are marketing and growth two different teams or one and the same? Yeah, so uh, this is the thing that we've learned a lot on. So we are really in that kind of, I think that second and third phase where we have a centralized team who sit within product. So they're within product, I'm within marketing. So they product really own growth in HubSpot now. And um, that centralized team have done a really good job of democratizing growth across PMs. And I think that's the big thing, right? Is like PMs now when they create their features and when they're building product, they have the tools to run experiments. They have the tools to like figure out where their upgrade points to go, and they have the growth team to actually work with them on that. And the way that we collaborate with product today, and it works really, really well, is we kind of create small groups, these kind of squads of product engineers and marketers around specific things that we want to do. So I run 
you know, all of the acquisitions. So everything that gets into uh, leads and everything that gets into the products. And when they get into the product, product have really instrumented now the paths of how those people onboard and upgrade. And we've learned a lot from that from when we started Freemium. And then we have some other initiatives within acquisition that we're actually building product to better acquire people. And for those two initiatives, we have squads built out where we have a couple of marketers, a couple of engineers, and a couple of product people who are all focused on moving that metric. And what, in your opinion, is the most effective way to instill a growth mindset within an organization? I think it's show wins, you know, through through the through the chaos and the arguments uh, to begin with. If you can get some wins under your belt in the first three to six months, it changes everyone's opinion of what you're doing. And so you're not just kind of running all of these crazy experiments and annoying the product team. Because a lot of the time we, when we first started, you know, we were lucky that we had a really great product team who allowed us to try to do things with them and they were open to like trying things. But if we did that and for the first six months nothing happened and we didn't get many wins, then I think you would have just gone back to doing the way the things worked beforehand. So I think if you can really focus in on the things, like you may see some things that are longer-term plays and probably have longer-term scalability and will be a bigger impact on the overall company, but they'll take a long time to actually see the results of. And then there's these smaller things that have very small impacts, but you can actually see that impact in a short amount of time. That's the things I would initially focus on. And then when you've done that, you're kind of just building out the tools and processes to democratize growth across uh, across the product or engineering uh, and the company. And with all that you do, how do you find the time to run your own podcast called Growth TLDR? Tell <laughs> us about the show, what motivated you to start it, and who were some of your favorite guests so far? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the reason I started the show is very different from, I think, why other people start podcasts. So I'm uh, uh, an introvert, and if I was left to my own devices, I would never... I would sit in my room and not talk to humans. And that's not the best <laughs> way to learn. Uh, the best way to learn is to talk to other humans because humans know more things than I do. And so the reason I started the podcast was because I'm based in Dublin and I do travel and for conferencing, but I don't get to spend like lots of time in the Valley or all these places where all these people hang out. And not that cool people don't hang out in Dublin, like Intercom and all these great companies. <laughs> and so what I, so that's why I started the podcast. Honestly, it was just to interact and learn from other people. And it's gone actually pretty well. And so I don't know, like all all of the guests are my favorite guests in their own individual way. So, Very diplomatic yeah, yeah. answer. Learn to be a politician. And now that you're on the other side of the mic today, I wanted to ask you something that I've heard you ask a lot of your guests. So what are some of the skills that you are most thankful for, for <laughs> possessing in your career to date? Okay, so I think there's a, there's a couple of things because I am not the, the like the, de facto person to give a career advice because my first part, my, I had two careers. I had a career as a software developer and um, I was terrible at it, uh, really average and uh, and then restarted as a marketer. And so, th- so one of the things that really helped me was just to start to do things I was actually interested in. So I spent a lot of time uh, getting my degree and then I was like, well, I have my degree so I should do keep developing because, you know, I have this degree. And I did that for two or three years. And I was like, well, things might get better. I might get more interested. And I realized that I would never get interested because I was never very good at it. So do the things that you're passionate about. I think that's been one of the things that have helped me. I think focusing on opportunities and titles. I think there's a lot of people who like want to be, you know, oh, I want to be the director or VP. And then in this company, they're a manager. And in another company, they're a VP. But they're the VP with one other person and the janitor, right? And so they're not getting actually much experience. So I've never really asked for a title. I've always tried to like focus on what I thought was the biggest opportunity the company had and try to maneuver myself in, into that place. And then the other thing is like always look for feedback. So the thing that I've always tried to do in my career is 
get feedback from everyone, no matter how brutal it is on me, because a lot of it is brutal because I do a lot of things wrong and then act on it pretty fast. And I think that's helped me pretty, that's helped me out pretty well. And what's the best piece of feedback or advice you received so far? Yeah, yeah, there's been a couple actually. So I'll give you two of my favorite ones. I'm very like numbers focused. And so when I first started managing large groups of people, someone wrote that uh, Kieran is very robotic. He really comes in and he just goes, what are the numbers like? Give me the numbers. And they were right, right? I was not showing any empathy towards their life, right? These people who are on my team, I was not asking them how their weekend was. I was not asking them like, what's going on in your life? I was just like, oh, like, how do we grow? How do we grow? How do we grow? And that was really great for me as both a manager, but also a human, right? Like just mm-hmm. taking more interest in people, people and empathy with people. And then the other one was when I started working on freemium, someone said to me, you're the most black and white person in that. Like you either, you believe this thing and everyone who does believe that thing are right and they're great and you think they're awesome. And everyone who doesn't believe that thing, you think they're suck and they're not good at their jobs. And I didn't understand the gray, right? And that's yeah. why I never took time to like sit down with that person, understand why they were saying no, why they didn't agree with that thing or why they weren't doing the thing I wanted them to do. And that again was a huge inflection point in my career and got a lot better as a manager and again as a person by taking on board that feedback. That's great. Well, thanks so much for coming in today. Where can we keep up to date with your thinking? Yeah, so uh, you can just connect with me on, you can go to HubSpot, check out all our stuff. You can go to LinkedIn and find me on LinkedIn or go to Twitter. Go to LinkedIn actually because my name on Twitter is really stupid. It's Search Brat. I don't know why I call myself that and it's (laughs) embarrassing, but you go to LinkedIn then you might find me on Twitter as well. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.